Lizzie is a true survivor. Her story is absolutely incredible, mind-blowing story of survival and uh, healing. She was abused in so many sad, just inexplicable ways. And um, her ability to uh, withstand everything that she did and recover to a place where she's now married and has a child is really remarkable. So hope you enjoy this episode. There are two basic motivating forces, fear and love. When we're afraid, we pull back from life. When we're in love, we open up to all that life has to offer with passion, excitement, and acceptance. Coming to you from our studio in Santa Barbara, California, this is the Fear Me Out podcast. We're not your typical self-help program. Our show takes a deep dive into those psychological issues that affect us on a daily basis. We hope to shift your perspective and have you experiencing emotions differently. Now with Dr. Dana Saperstein. Hi everyone, it's Justine and Dr. Dana. We're here again with another episode of the Fear Me Out podcast. We're really excited for today's guest. We have Lizzie with us and what a story she has. I have only heard bits and pieces of it, so I'm looking forward to hearing the rest today. But she has endured things that are unimaginable, um, starting with mental health and trauma and abuse and parental alienation. And she has come out the other side even stronger. Uh, She's put in the work. She's had some slips and get back ups, but she has turned her life around and is living the most glorious life. And it's all because she knew she had to go through it and not around it. So Lizzie, thank you. We're so honored that you're here with us today. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. So could you tell us a bit about yourself and then we'll start asking you a million questions? Yeah, yeah. Um, I am... I'm a new mother. I got a two and a half year old daughter and a husband here in town, a, a business owner and a Santa Barbara native um, and have been, I feel like forever working on myself. So this is an exciting moment to have. My husband was actually like shocked that I was willing to come in and, and talk, which I was surprised about. I yeah. like, I... I that's one of my favorite things about you is you are so open and so honest about what you've gone through, like yeah. starting with your childhood. Yeah. So let's let's talk about that for a little bit. Yeah. So I had, I will go quickly, pre-birth, my, um, my parents are in their 40s. My dad did not want to have another kid. He met my mom. She had um, said she had a hysterectomy. And, um, and so thus I would not be possible, but in fact, she had not had one. And, um, and so she got pregnant and this like con began of, um, she came, she said she came from a trust fund family and, and they were Catholic and she would be disinherited if, um, she wasn't married and, um, before this baby came. And so my dad, they got married. Um, she didn't, she didn't want to live in the house that he'd had with previous women. So they bought all this community property and then she kind of took him to the cleaners. Um, Where and did they meet? On Have a flight to Mexico. They met on a flight. And, and then my dad was just ravished by her. He said he called all the resorts and whatever, beach town, looking for her. And, and it's true of her personality. She's um, charming and eloquent and beautiful, or at least at the time, right? And um, quite captivating and... Um, a really frightening mentally ill person because you don't see her coming, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and so... Was none of what she said true? None of what she said was true, no. So she made up an identity. Uh-huh. Wow. Just on the fly. Yeah. And she had... Um, my brother is 13 years older, and so my, so he existed at the time, but uh, my dad didn't know about him until um, after I was born. He showed up on the doorstep one day. He'd been living with my mom's boyfriend in Florida the entire time. And um, it was Matthew and, and huge role in my life. Um, And so 
got divorced when I was two. Matthew, my mom, and I moved to Pennsylvania. Um, From here in Santa Barbara? Uh-huh. Okay. And there, the craziness began. We, um, My dad, they were in a custody battle. He didn't want her to leave. He hired a private detective who would sit outside our house every day. Christmas, Thanksgiving, it was like the most bizarre. We would leave the house in the car and Tom Taylor would follow us. It's like very knowingly. It was like, <laughs> no, it was just like the strangest caravan of all caravans, right? And um, and you knew this was happening as a little kid? Yeah. And uh-huh. so, and my mom, you know, make us wave to him when we yeah. went outside. It was just like very, and- um, How just, old were you? Uh, from as long as I can remember. I think my dad said it started when I was four because he had- he had gone to court again and again trying to to get custody, more custody, trying to say that she's insane and not fit to have me. And um, and as like the father and being in a different state, he couldn't get custody. And so um, so he hired Tom from f- when I was four until I was in fourth grade. So t- it, was that 10 years old? Six years he followed us and um, accumulating his evidence. And so eventually... Um, the, the judge on our um, custody case in Pennsylvania, um, Judge Solomon, ended up getting disbarred because he was having an affair with my mom, and that's why this case kept getting overturned. <laughs> Wait a second. Yeah. Wait a minute. Stop <laughs> just for one brief moment. Your mom was having an affair with a judge that was in charge of custody? Yeah. Boy, did she, your do, mom that on, did she do it on purpose? Oh, yeah. I, I'm sure. I remember going to Judge Solomon's house as a kid, and her, he had a son, Ethan, that was my age, and I. but we spent a ton of time over there. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and I remember a Jewish family having latkes for the first time. Like, mm-hmm. it was a, a part of my childhood, but I'm, I don't, nothing my mom did was, was not calculated. Right. You know? And so, um, so the case finally got moved to, I'm skipping a bunch, but I'll, I can return, but the case got moved back to California. A search, uh, I'm sorry, uh, arrest warrant was put out for my mom, and um, and I remember ha- I had chicken pox. I didn't know what was going on. Chicken pox, we get in the car, and we take this three-week road trip through the south, and I'm like, incredibly <laughs> uncomfortable, right? Itching, <laughs> scratching. <laughs> this is like, I mean, her, like, like she's so she's diagnosed with, borderline personality disorder, narcissistic personality disorder, histrionic, antisocial, like I, 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 which I didn't realize was any different than anybody else's mom. So this kind of crazy, erratic, manic behavior wasn't unusual you, to right. me that like you they were leaving and we're not coming back till like God knows when. But um, I remember we arrived home from that trip, probably like, you know, the middle of the night, two in the morning, let's say, and at six in the morning, the police had our house surrounded. Um, there was a huge search warrant. I moved to California. My mom went to prison based on the findings of Tom Taylor and all this evidence and and arrests and things that had happened. She'd been like arrested for random shoplifting stuff over the years at that time. What did she go to jail for? She went to jail for uh, shoplifting, possession, um, in possession with intent to sell, prostitution, child abuse and neglect. Oh my God. And, um, was and your, was your brother with you during all of this? Yeah, he was. So he was with me. My, um, my brother dropped out his sophomore year of high school to take care of me. Um, okay. cause my mom would disappear for a week, two weeks, uh, you know, lengths of time. And, um, was he a kind person? My brother's like, yeah, my brother's one of those. Um, I don't know if this is, if this is true of abusive households, there's like a good kid and a bad kid, and I was the good kid, and my brother was very much the the bad kid, but in my belief, that's because I think my mom resented my brother. I, I think she knew that he was, like, really pure, and despite living his entire life with her, he would never, ever turn out to be like her, and I don't think that's true of me. I think I absolutely had the capacity to turn into my mom had I not gotten out of that situation and I think she knew that in me and and maybe there's some safety in trusting in me and confiding in me in that way and then maybe not like this hate or like loathing she saw from my brother um and so oh I feel like very grateful to be here on the planet today because my brother fed me and care of me and bathe I mean all the things so he took really good care of you oh yeah um so during that time like my I didn't go to school 
until fourth grade when I got here. Wow. And um, I was too old to be held back. And so they, um, I got like a assistant, like, you know, that was mentally challenged. I didn't know how to read or write. It's like a feral animal coming to, um, to school. And on the uh, first day at Mount Carmel, the, um, the teacher was like, I'm going to do roll call. Let me know what you guys would like to be called. Like, do you have a nickname? And so I thought you just got to choose your name. <laughs> And so um, I had no idea how this worked, right? And so I, for the next three years, I went by Zoe. And so my husband just thinks it's insane because we run into people from my childhood, you so, know? So people just believed your name was Zoe? Yeah, they thought my name, name was Zoe. I thought, and so my, my parents would come in, they'd check on, you know, the, like the teacher. They'd be like, oh yeah, Zoe's doing really well. And they're like, oh, I know our like, child's Elizabeth. And they're like, no, she goes by Zoe. And it was like <laughs> news to them, you know? And uh, you, you could just choose any name you, you could wanted. You choose any name like you Zoe. want. And, uh, wow. and so all of this was, I mean, just to like, all of this was new. And so my brother was dealing with a lot. Like I was just, <laughs> you know, like a, a, a kid with no structure or understanding of how society works that he had to take care of. And, um, did your brother come with you from? No. So he was over 18 at the time. And so that was like a really, I can only imagine how all that felt for him. So my mom, my mom went to prison for four years. That's the last time I've seen her. That was, um, 2000. Um, and you were how old at that point? 10. You were 10. And so, so 10 years living with her in this chaos. Yeah, and and it was horrible. I now, like, realize, and re- I mean, I remembered it going on, but again, I have no basis of comparison. So when I was taken, there's nothing I wanted more than to be back with my mom. Mm-hmm. And so for my brother, his, like, selflessness knows no bounds. And so I think he was so happy that I got out of the situation, but in that he lost his mom, you know? And, and so he's left at our house in Pennsylvania by himself. His sister's gone. His mom's gone. It really upended his, his world. And at the time, my... Um, and his dad's nowhere in the picture. His dad, his dad's really lovely, but didn't have the financial means to, um, to, to fight this. And, and so that's what my, my dad will call me the million-dollar baby he couldn't figure out actually he was in a fight with his partner at his company secretly was paying all of my mom's legal fees for all these years. Wait, what? Yeah. Just because they were in a battle for, and then the company eventually went to auction and my dad lost it. But for years they had been in court battling for who was going to have the controlling. Um, and why were they doing that? Because my, I, my uncle had died. And so the shares had been split up amongst all the the owners but my dad was the acting ceo and so unless they were 50 50 partners he didn't want to have a minority share so so they were in this battle and but why were they paying your mother's legal legal just bills? i just, think just, just to get back create, at him yeah to create havoc like he they you know my dad's an alcoholic he's had i think so he's had four duis and one insurance fraud because he said his car was stolen when mm. he should have been a dui and so Singer would have um, private detectives follow him home from work into the bars and to sh- and show that he's an unfit person. So I think the paying for his my mom's lawyer fees was just a way to cause more um, disruption in his life, you know, in yeah. hopes of eventually getting. So I, my dad found out later, but he couldn't figure out how my mom was affording to stay in court this entire time. All that to say, my brother's dad wasn't able. To, right. to fight for him. And, and that, did your mom ever work or she didn't? She just... No, she just had child support and, um, and I mean, I'm sure like drug money and the shoplifting thing. I mean, I remember, I remember shop, uh, shoplifting. And, um, and when I started to like recognize that the things that were on the, the shopping belt were not the things that we had in our car, you know, mm-hmm. and, um, and I remember there was a flood in a small town near us. And I came home one day to our living room was filled with men's and children's and women's clothing and books and household items. I mean, it was like, like Macy's in our house. <laughs> right. And, um, and she had stolen all of this stuff to donate to these flood victims. And so we got a big write up in the paper oh for like, gosh. I mean, it, it was just crazy. And, um, and our neighbors around us 
knew that um she would be gone. I would go knock on it because my, my brother would be gone too. Like he, he's dealing with his own trauma and abuse yeah. and, and he's doing the best he can, which was more than enough. But, um, there's a lot of times I'd be alone. And, um, so I'd go and I knock on their doors to see if they had food. And so they would start filing, you know, calling the police and filing these, um, reports. And so my mom slit, uh, our neighbor, the cashman's cat's throat and left it on their doorstep and, um, and so people didn't know what to do, right, you know, and right. these people ended up, uh, testifying later and, and they've been like lifelong friends now. Um, a couple of these older couples that watched me and took care of me. And I remember, um, uh, our next door neighbor, Pam Wingfield, uh, gave me a white chocolate bar when it sent me home with the you know, this thing and, um, and she didn't know. And so I, I brought this home and my mom found it. She went over there and um, you don't ever fe- feed my child again. You know, what are you doing? It's overstepping. And so she would sneak me this food. I'd get, o- get over there. She'd feed me, but she'd never send mm-hmm. me home with stuff again. So I had this kind of secret army of um, people taking care of me. And um, Your mom slit their na- your neighbor's cat's throat and left it <laughs> on the I'm still back on stuck that. on that one. <laughs> Which I didn't find out till later oh, when so the cashmans. You, you, you didn't know. I didn't know that. Time. I didn't know, but the, no, I didn't know that until the cashmans came forward later and said, oh, "I okay. we try we trying to do to the help. best we could to help her, right. but there's also like there's a line where like we became afraid for we have children, yeah. we became afraid for our children and the safety of our family. Um, what were you thinking through all of this? I mean, I, I know you didn't have anything else to compare it to but were you ever just like what is going on or or why is this woman taking care of me or were you just so grateful that the neighbor was feeding you that that's as far as you that's as far as I look? thought yeah, yeah. I, I was so I was so great I was so grateful for that but I also didn't I don't think I realized that not everyone was going through the same thing and what know? about your brother because he was older he was older but he so he was going he had a, he had a, a pretty serious like drug and alcohol problem at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, I know in high school, three different suicide attempts. Um, your, your brother, my brother, um, my mom. I don't want to overshare on my on his experience, um, but my mom was molesting both of us, and um, both you and your brother, me and my brother, and my brother didn't know that it was happening to me. And I know he feels his own guilt. I think he thought because he was a boy, it was happening to him and it wouldn't happen to me. And, uh, and I didn't realize that it was happening to me and it wasn't happening to everybody else. Right. And so. So that part of it even felt sort of normal to you? Yeah, it felt like a lot. I mean, I slept with my mom in bed every, which feels like really like the shame piece of that to be like, yeah, like I, I don't know that I could say that I enjoyed it, but I didn't hate it because right. it felt like I was being Love. loved uh-huh. yeah. and um and you know so happy to have my mom home you know yeah. like right. I, that's all I Giving wanted you attention yeah attention yeah. and good attention and not be hit I mean like I get in trouble she'd fill our bathtub with water and hold me under there until I stopped you know my head under until I wouldn't panic and you know until I gave up fighting and so I couldn't shower for years because I didn't want water to hit my face you know like so she would be really incredibly mean. What was the purpose of? I do something wrong, you know, like oh, that oh, was like was the punishment. punishment. Oh, okay. And um, and so yeah, I was really happy when the attention was nice. Yeah. Right. Like I would take sex, be molested all day over being you know, drowned. Drowned. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so um, yeah, I I got here and um. And I missed my mom and I really didn't like my, my dad and my stepmom because I've been hearing my whole life how terrible they were and how they wanted to destroy my mom and I's connection and yeah. they had it out for us. And But then all of a sudden I got here and I realized that she's gone and they're, and they, they're waiting for me to be like her, you know? And so my only chance of of unifying with them is to say that I don't like my mom and I hate her and she was bad. And I, so I had, a, I was writing all these letters. I mean, just like my constant need for approval. I was writing all these letters to my mom in prison being like, I, you are terrible to me and all this stuff. And I'd show my 
dad and my stepmom these letters hoping that they'd um, be proud of me. Right. You know, and see this as a boundary and, and separate me from her. But and you didn't really feel that. No, I felt like it was such a betrayal. Yeah. You know, I, I was angry. I remember being so angry at my mom for leaving me. Right. It felt like such an abandonment. But I was not angry at her for the things that, and, and I probably was later, but um, not for the things she had done at that time. And I only then began, I like going to school and I'm sharing and I saying, oh, like, oh, they say something about my stepmom. And I'd be like, that's not my mom. My mom's mm-hmm. gone. And where is your mom? And oh, she's in prison. Would you say that? Yeah. Because I didn't know there was any. And yeah, then all yeah. of a sudden kids weren't allowed to play with me anymore. Because your mom was in prison. My mom was in prison. And that's weird and blah, blah, blah. And, um, and so I started to quickly learn that the truths about me weren't okay. And, um, and I'm sure my, I was already a, a liar before that because my mom's entire existence is built on, on falsehoods. But, um, I began lying about everything, you know, to the point where I couldn't separate the truth, um, from lies. And, uh, and I, and I remember feeling I didn't know what the so hopeless and helpless and and dreaming about dying from like a very young age and not knowing how to cope with those emotions so I was cutting myself and um my dad my dad's my dad's drinker like I said and so he'd come home from work and he'd start drinking and um they weren't thrilled to have me there with them in like all honesty and even in the best of times bringing in a child who you haven't lived with yeah and and ever, it, it, really, it was and a then great child right not like right. a and now you're almost child. a teenager yeah <laughs> that's that's its own it's a lot and yeah. my stepmom never wanted a kid I mean I I was like the the yeah. toughest of projects and so I had a playroom they never had their own kids no okay I'm sorry no no, no 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 that's fine um they had, I had a playroom and, and so I think they were always, we didn't do dinners together. I'd take my dinner and I'd go to the playroom and I'd close the door and we existed in these very separate worlds under the same roof. And so I started making myself screwdrivers from as long as I could remember and bringing it in there and, and not caring. I just, I just wanted to not feel what I was feeling. Right. And so like 12 years old, you're making screwdrivers. Um, I think like, yeah, tw- uh, seventh sixth grade because I, I went to boarding school in seventh so is that yeah about and 12? did they know no they had okay. no idea yeah because they were so they were drinking yeah, and well yeah and and I would go to bed no one like would check on me to go to bed at night they'd go to bed I'd be in my playroom watching I love Lucy or whatever and put myself to sleep it was yeah. like um until I I didn't want to live with them anymore and so I begged them to send me to boarding school <clears throat> And they were, I'm sure, were put up like a light protest, but I'm sure we're thrilled. <laughs> They're like, um, and so. And was there any communication with your brother at this point? No, my brother wasn't allowed to talk to me anymore from because of my, my dad. Um, my brother wouldn't testify in the custody battle once it came here, saying that any of this stuff happened. And so my dad didn't think that my brother had my best interests at heart, which is, you know, quite a thing to shoulder for my yeah. brother is going through his And why do you trauma. think your brother chose that? Because this is mom. I think he's like, I. she's a, like, I, if I were to imagine, I'm sure he thinks Elizabeth's already removed from the situation. She's safe. Mm-hmm. I like, I know she's protected in that way. I, and now I have to protect myself. Right. My mom's going to get out of prison and, and she's going and she's to scary. Kill me. Yeah. 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 Like that's a real fear, mm-hmm. right? And so I don't blame him. I don't I mean my brother of, of all the people on the planet, I like think has the best my best interest yes. in mind all of the time. And so to to have him shoulder that felt very unfair. Um, so I didn't talk to him for years. Um, did, you, did you miss him? Were you sad? Yeah, I missed him. There's one person on earth who knew what I was going yeah. through and how I felt. And, you know, I felt incredibly lonely with this story. And, um, and so, yeah, I really, I missed him and I hated my dad for doing that. And, um, but I could never tell my dad I hated him cause I was afraid they were, you know, they Where'd weren't you, gonna want me. Where anymore. would you be next? Yeah. yeah, they would tell me, 
when I would do things wrong, that they're going to put me up for adoption. Or my stepmom would always say, if you, you know, you go out for milk and don't come home, bring me with you, you know? And so to my dad. And so I was always afraid they were going to leave me, you know, and that, that they were only, that my love was like very conditional and my safety was very conditional. And I, I asked my dad one time about it. I said, I think you're supposed to love me unconditionally. And he's like, no, I love you under these conditions. And if you don't meet these conditions, you don't have a place in my life. When you were young, you said this. Yeah. In the seventh grade, I remember on, on, um, a phone call from my dorm. And, and I believe it today. Like, we have a relationship. And I think our relationship's the best relationship it could be, given um, who we are as individuals. But there are conditions I have to, to meet. And, um, <coughs> and so it exists within the parameters of those conditions. So who did you have in your life at this point that ha- had your back, that was giving you any sort of love or Knowing that you were safe, like nobody. <laughs> I don't think I had anybody. No one at the boarding school or any I teachers. Had, or? I had a. Um, so I had a girlfriend. Or I had a best friend who was the first person I had, like told all these secrets to, and um, and 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 not to say that um that being gay or bisexual comes from trauma, but for me, I think it did. Mm-hmm. I. I um, I confided in this girl at boarding school, at boarding school. She heard my story and she felt it. I remember I, it was the first time somebody had reacted to this story as like, I'm so sorry that happened to you. Aww. And rather than like my parents or my stepmom, my dad, parents is what I refer to them as rather than my parents being like, like, she's such a, bitch and she's terrible but it was more about like their own like mm-hmm. pain and hurt around it it was not like lizzie how i'm I, i'm so glad you're here right you know i'm so right. glad that you survived it and so i felt so loved by her reaction and um for good reason <laughs> yeah it felt so good yeah and so i think the last time i felt really loved was probably by my mom and so all of a sudden this relationship started to really mirror my relationship with my mom and it became really sexual secretly because she didn't want to be gay and I didn't think I was gay because all the other people I was attracted to were men and I it was confusing mm-hmm. and I'm drinking at the time um and you're like 14 I'm 12 so that's 12 that's seventh grade seventh and eighth grade at this boarding school okay and so I'm going home on the coming home on the weekends and I'm filling those Costco size herbal essence bottles with <laughs> vodka from my dad's Kirkland vodka and I'm bringing it back and I'm not telling That's anyone smart, actually. Drink. Yeah, it was great. <laughs> <laughs> little shampoo. Yeah. Uh, I'm not it's not like a point of pride or like a social thing for me. I'm just like trying to cope. Were you and just drinking alone? Just drinking alone. I like go back to the door between classes, um, drinking for like when I got up in the morning. I am like cutting my chest and my stomach so nobody sees. Um, and I'm dreaming about suicide. And I had at the time a pretty deep, whatever, re- um, relationship with God. I'd grown up Catholic. My mom told me that like we're all God's children and God's watching all of us. And um, I remember I took like the God thing really seriously that like there's literally somebody. I mean, it's a very big idea for a small person, especially a small person who's like not being treated well. You know, I'm like, there's somebody up there who's watching me, who's letting everything happen. And I don't think that's his fault at the time. I think it's my fault. And that I must have done something really wrong to make God mad at me that he's punishing me like this. And so I'm praying and asking, what can I do better? I'll do anything. Just like, please tell me what to do or let me die. Like that was like the, my constant prayer. Wow. And I remember at, um, at Mount Carmel at my elementary school, we'd go to church and at mass during the week and the altar boy during the change in Eucharist would ring this bell when the wafer would change to Jesus. And I just thought that was the most magical moment in my week that God was there and he was changing this fucking thing right in front of, <laughs> I just like couldn't think of anything 
more unbelievable than that. And then we had this, um, our Christmas recital, um, uh, rehearsal in the church. And so we're up on stage one day and someone's messing around and they ring this bell and my head did like a 180. That the bell wasn't Jesus this entire time changing, wow. that somebody was actually secretly oh, ringing it there. Oh. I had no idea. Oh. And I felt so betrayed oh. that, that they had lied to me. And, and of course, no one's like I trying mean, to lie. I mean, the one thing that you can hang on to. Yes, that it, it was like the, my, my ultimate Santa Claus reveal. And, um, and so I started to like really hate God and feel really mm -hmm. betrayed and really left behind. And so... Seventh and eighth grade go by. I I try to commit suicide. My parents, I mean the school found. I mean school found me and alerted my parents. I had to go to like a mandated therapy twice a week at school. And the and I started to become like my mom. I I, I convinced my therapist. I was supposed to go to a really um, prestigious all girls boarding school in Virginia for horseback riding. And I started to realize there was no way I was going to be able to get drugs or alcohol at this place. And so I told my therapist, I don't feel safe going that far away from my family. I have to stay here and go to Santa Barbara High School. I think that would be the best thing for me. And so she told my parents that that would, you know, she, Lizzie needs to be close by. And, um, and so I moved home for the summer between eighth grade and my freshman year. And my parents spent this time with me. And, um, and I had, I had, met some guy at some party who was like 25 during my eighth grade year and I had didn't have any money so I was I had promised to have sex with him in exchange for cocaine if he came over I thought my parents weren't at the house he came they were at the house and um and it was oh you know what it was my dad had put something on my AOL messenger where every screen that I went to on my internet mm -hmm. printed out on his computer. Okay. So I was having, so they, I think they pretended to not be at the house because uh. they knew this guy was coming. And so they trapped me in it and, um, sent me to a sleepaway summer camp. I'd gone to every year to put me somewhere while they figured out what to do with me. I didn't know that's what they were doing, but they, they, they told me, I got We got to remove you from this situation. You're going to summer camp and be there for four weeks and then we'll, we'll reevaluate. And so at the end of the summer camp, they told me we were going to meet their friends in Salt Lake City. Um, I, I had, I remember I was wearing some, I was real into like, you know, dressing super provocatively. I had all the gnarly eyeliner on and my tube top and, uh, and black hair was real, it was real aggressive. And uh, I showed up at this, at the Salt Lake airport and this um, big black man and this little lady meet me right when I get off um at my gate because you could still go to the gate without a ticket I guess and um and they knew my name and um and, and they call me by the name and they introduced themselves and they, hey Elizabeth like we're here blah blah and so I thought they were the people adopting me all this wow. I thought I'm like as a man and a woman I've been told I'm in for that for adoption this is it they're going to take me and so I I freaked out you know I didn't want to be taken by my new adoptive family um, uh, and so I, I, um, I, I had a bit of a meltdown in Salt Lake airport. They handcuffed me. I remember my tube top being around my waist <laughs> at one point. Cause it was just like this right. full freak out. And, but in fact, they were just escorting me to rehab. And, um, and so I went to rehab in Utah for a year and it saved my life. I, um, did it make a difference for you? Oh my gosh. So it, it was, was one of those positive experiences. It was such an incredible experience. I know that's not how it is for everybody. And I, and I feel for the people that were in the, in these vulnerable places that were taken advantage of, but that was not my, my experience. I, I heard a lot of people's stories in there where I, that was 2004. So I was 13 turning 14 the week that I got there. And, um, and people would share about how they'd been great their whole lives and they have these wonderful families and at 12 or 13, they had taken the wrong road, you know, and they got in with a bad group and they started making bad choices and going to this program was an attempt to write their course. 
And that wasn't my experience. I, I, I never been on course. I had no idea who I was. There was nothing to come back to. It was, um, a opportunity to find out who I wanted to be and create a life worth living. Um, Is that what they did for you? Yeah, it was, it was really hard. <laughs> it was really wow. terrible. Was, uh, it inten- was it intense? Just days and days and weeks of just yeah therapy and you therapy group in the morning group at night individual therapy um my parents wouldn't participate um why oh I think they thought they were doing like a hard love thing and Mm -hmm. this was like Lizzie's problem and so Lizzie needs to fix it and um so they sent me this uh fucking letter sent me this letter every week and it was a roadmap from Utah to Santa Barbara and the things I had to do were drawn in this picture to get back to this family of course they didn't have to do anything but to the Mm. point where my our therapist was like you know this is like this is a group effort here Mm -hmm. like you play a role and so Lizzie can only get so far because they wouldn't do family therapy family therapy was like a weekly thing that everybody had to do they wouldn't do family therapy and so I've I'm sure that didn't feel good. No, I felt aban- I felt abandoned. Yeah. They put me there as somebody else's problem, and it's nobody's fault but my own. And, um, yeah, so it was nice to have somebody, like, advocate for me mm-hmm. to say this, like, wasn't okay. You so know? what happened after that year? Um, I, my, my stepmom said it's, you know, it's either Lizzie or me. She can't come home oh, once okay. I graduated the program. And that was actually okay. I was really it was the first time in my life I'd felt happy and I was really afraid of losing that. And I didn't trust myself at all. And, um, so I went to a sober living kind of program in, um, Montana where you live at this house. It was all girls, but I went to the public school. So it was really cool. Cause you had this opportunity to have a real kid life, but with the safety of this yeah. network of girls and the, like accountability and we do therapy and groups. And it really showed me, where my weaknesses were because uh in island view in utah you're in a bubble you know i can like do i have growth but i it's not Mm -hmm. you know and um and so i go to school and i realize i have like a lot of a lot of issues (laughs) to work on still and um and at the utah program that i had there was a pivotal moment where um i had done something i got in trouble they they did this thing called individual focus where on a Friday afternoon, my therapist came. She took all of my belongings. She put me in gray sweatpants and shirt, and I had to sit at my desk, and I couldn't talk to anybody. And um, if I had to go to the bathroom, I had to write a note to the staff to ask if I could go to the bathroom. And it went like that for 72 hours till she came back on Monday to get me. And so um, it was horrible to sit with my thoughts and myself for three days. And... Um, and it changed my life that that moment. And because to get off of individual focus, she said, "We're you're going to go into your group of this on this unit where I've been living with these girls for six months, and for the first time in my life, I feel like I made meaningful relationships and connections. And you're going to tell every single person in the room how you use them. And I wow. didn't realize until then that I was. I was using everybody in there, and I hadn't been honest and really making connections. I had kind of kept the stuff that was important to me close and used them for what I could get. And so I had to look all these people in the eye that I thought that I loved and connected with and show myself that I had been fooling myself. And, um, and, and so there was like a big change in that. Yeah. It was really starting to like see these ugly truths and, and not to say that, I mean, there'd been like a lot of talk about my mom and what had happened and maybe not as much talk about what, my role in it going forward was and um, where where my opportunity to change, which is really empowering. Right. Um, and so my Montana program was a lot of that. It was showing how how I use people and maybe how I lied and my like need for attention physically and sexually with, um, the people at the school, I mean, just uh, all these areas of, of weakness. Um, how long were you there for? Three years. Three oh, years. So you went through Yeah, your, I went all through high school, high school in these there. programs. Wow. And, um. Did you see your dad and stepmom in those three years? Yeah, they would come. 
um, visit and, and then sometimes I'd come home for breaks. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, you are there year round. So like through summer and stuff, if I, if I came home, it maybe would be like a 10 day period. Like it works in a level system. So you're only allowed to leave campus or whatever at these times. And I, we had like a nice relationship mm-hmm. I, and, um, we did family therapy and, um, my parents really, so to this day believe I mean, they've had such a limited time living with me in my life, right? And um, uh, under the same roof. And so I think my parents believe that the Lizzie that they knew is the Lizzie I will always be. And anything else is kind of an exception to that truth. And so... Uh, that doesn't feel great. No, it's it's not, it's terrible. It's terrible. But yeah. it's... it's Now I, like, know it. And so I keep and it's things their close thing, to my heart. not yeah. yours. Yeah, yeah that having a baby has been really a healing process for me in that because there's so much of I didn't know what what was me like maybe I really am a bad unlovable you know unworthy kid and it's people who are supposed to love me no matter what don't and maybe that says more about me than about them Mm -hmm. and then you have this baby and you realize they can't do nothing wrong. Yeah, I mean, she does everything wrong, but like she can do nothing wrong, which is just incredible, yeah. right? Yeah. It brings out this side of me that I didn't know was there. I'm like not an especially easygoing or patient person. And, uh, and I see this being that's just like so pure and innocent and there's no malice in her wrongdoing. Mm-hmm. I mean, just like, I can forgive her forever, you know? It's um How scared were you to have a baby? I was really afraid. I didn't know if I wanted I was I'm I, I mean to this day, not so much about being not with her, but I'm terrified of being my mom. It's like my biggest fear. And then that imposter syndrome in life of of people like you giving me credit. And I'm like, what if I'm just fooling everybody? What if in fact I am her? And nobody knows. And I'm lying to myself, you know. I, I really am afraid of that. And um can I um interrupt you yes, just please. for a second? Something that I don't think that most people know is that the kind of person that your mother is is genetically programmed into her nervous system. So if you were going to be here, you would already be her. It's not just like dormant. <laughs> it's all <like> lactose <laughs> intolerance and wait till no, I'm forty six. It, it starts up. in the beginning of the person's life and depending on how they're raised, it determines the severity of the okay. of the condition. But obviously your mom's got multiple personality. Yeah. She doesn't have multiple personalities. Yeah. She has multiple personality disorders. disorders. Those are genetic. Okay. So you don't need to you worry think, about you it. Think, you think I'm free and clear? Because I'm I'm <laughs> I'm sitting with you and, and and you have such a big question mark over your head. And I've been doing this for a long, long time, and I work with tons of people who have been harmed by people that have personality disorders. And every single person that has been hurt in ways like you have always wonder, well, what if I'm that? What if I'm, because obviously you're going to imitate some of those behaviors. Totally. But there's a really big difference between imitation and, and, and the ability to, to even wonder if you're imitating. Because if you're somebody like your mom, there's no question about your behavior. It's completely humanly impossible to know if you have a personality disorder. Mm. So the very f- fact that you ask that question means that you don't. That's so, big, really, okay, but you like, I feel like my, well, like what I said earlier with my brother, like I just don't think he has the capacity to be mean. And I think I do. And I have been. Everybody has the capacity to be mean. I'm mean. Yeah. Uh, how, how old is your... Um, he, so 13, so 45. No, how old is your child? Oh, two and a half. And boy or girl? Girl. And uh, how much is she interested in your opinion about how she should behave? Oh, uh, none. None <laughs> at right? all. Why, why would she care what you yeah. what you think? Yeah. And that's going to continue for the next at least three years. Yeah. To varying degrees. But by the time she's five or six, she will start to mediate her own behavior based on the fact that she's displeasing her parents. Okay. And that's what creates a conscience. Somebody with a personality disorder does not have a conscience Mm -hmm. from birth and never gets one. So you can't be responsible for your own behavior if you don't have a conscience. The very fact that you are able to look at yourself from the outside means you don't have a personality disorder. Nobody gets one later in life. It's never happened in the history of the world. So if it happens to you, 
I'm American. You're going to be famous. <laughs> it, it just means that you're not a human being because it's yeah. not humanly possible. Okay. You're not broken, I promise you. Just because you may act in not the best ways in the world, I mean, please, we're all capable of that. Yeah. Right? I mean, if you knew me as a little kid, you would think that guy's going to end up in jail yeah. or dead by the time he's a teenager. So I'm not in jail and I'm not yeah. well, not quite dead yet. But so I, I, re- I just want to reassure you that it would have already, it would no, have, it would have started in the beginning of your life and you would have been like your mom yeah. straight from the get go, not in an Im- imitative way, but in a real, in real way. way. So and if that helps a little bit, maybe that that's, does help. Maybe yeah, that's does one help. of the good reasons why you're here today. So I, I can reassure you, you don't need to worry about that. No, that there may be other things to worry about, but not that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so. especially like just compared to your brother, because you say he can do no wrong and, and or he can't be mean and you yeah. can. Like, I don't know. That doesn't really say anything about what you or he could become. That's you might just feel a little, my brother's a little nicer than I am. Yeah. You know? And I yeah. think it's just how people are just inherently but when you're brought up by a sociopath there is always one child that is the angel and one child that is the devil okay so that's a normal completely normal the person that's the angel suffers as much as the person that's the devil well i think that's what i go i was talking to my husband last night about this the the shame oh because he he was like so i in talking about my willingness to share Uh um i had said i you know and I told Justine this too. I my stepmom had given me um, all these memoirs growing up of other kids that had been abused, and um, and they were this lifeline that someone's putting into words how I feel, and I'm not alone, and I'm uh-huh. and it was just like yeah, um, I couldn't believe it, and and so I'd gone back and forth for a while about like, wanting to write a book, and um, just in hope that like maybe I could help somebody in uh-huh. that way, and. Um, but I had, I hadn't, and have not wanted to share my brother's story. I didn't know how to, how to like, leave it out. It felt like an important p- part of of my story. And um, does he not want his sh- his story shared? I don't know. So my, my my husband's like, why don't you ask him? I think he'd be totally okay with that. But I feel such a, a shame or a weakness. My brother never talks about any of our childhood stuff. And so he's the bad kid and he had to live with her his entire life and he doesn't talk about it. And so for me, I'm like, what's wrong with me? I didn't have it nearly as bad as my brother. I got out, I got therapy and help and all of the support and I still want to talk about it. And, Mm -hmm. and it feels like it feels, I feel embarrassed to ask him that like, Oh God, we just got to talk about it some more. There's a, there's a piece there, um, that is shameful to me, but, but my husband, like you said, maybe that one way is not better than the other. Maybe it's healthier that you want to be talking about this and the fact that he's completely unwilling and and not in judgment, just that I should maybe not judge well, that's my own. One, that's one of the reasons why I started this podcast is to show what it looks like for someone in my position to be super vulnerable. First of all, old men don't talk about anything yeah. of any value. And I wanted to make sure that um, the least one exception to the rule. And also, the more you talk about stuff, the less you demystify it. Mm-hmm. And it helps people not feel so bad about themselves. Because one of my specialties is working with people that have post-traumatic stress from being abused in every way that you can imagine. Yeah. Yeah. You specifically can yeah. imagine, yeah. if you know what I mean. Yeah. So the more that people talk about it, and don't give in to the shame because you did nothing to cause it and none of it is your fault. The more it helps other people step away from self-hate and move toward healing. So that's one of the main reasons why it's so important to talk about this stuff. And you're doing a beautiful job. And I can the thing that I'm most stunned by is that you can talk about all this and you're not sobbing. I think I've talked about it. I think that always gets people. And, and you know, I think that's probably why I don't share... And this is my, this is, I'm sure this is my childhood baggage. It's probably why I don't share about it a lot with people. Not because I don't want to, t- or, or, or I'm bothered to talk about it, but because uh-huh. I feel like I'm le- putting a lot on the person I'm sharing with. And everyone always leaves and they're like, oh my God, I'm so sorry that happened to you. And it's like big and heavy. And for me, it doesn't really feel big and heavy because there's a disconnect because I've talked well, about it so much but is it a disconnect or have you healed it maybe it's a healing maybe it, it but doesn't feel like it happened to me anymore it feels like it happened 
to a completely different person. I mean, it's I with sexually, me every day. But. I was sexually abused as a kid, uh-huh. and I can talk about it, and there's no emotion attached to okay. it. Okay, and that's a healing? Yes. Okay. That's what it feels like to me, but I had to go through a whole lot of uh, healing in order to get to a place where I could talk about it without feeling anxious and scared and yeah. sad and like I wanted to kill the person that did it and yeah. all those feel- normal feelings that you have. Um, so if you can, if you can do it and you, and you don't look like you're leaving your body while you're doing it. No, 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 no. It, it doesn't feel like a dissociative sort of thing. It just feels. But that would be the indication that you have not healed it. That By makes talking sense. about it without emotion and disconnecting is what most people do. Okay. Because that's an, and you don't hold your breath when you're talking either. And most people that have suffered trauma immediately start holding their breath when they start to talk about it. Oh, that's interesting. And that's something that's not even mm. part of the person's awareness at all. Because um, when I sit with people, I, I, one of the first things I do is notice how often they hold their breath when they're talking about certain things. Because that's their unconscious way of telling me yeah. that the trauma still lives inside of them. And you're not sitting here holding your breath. No, I'm not. I think my, I think my, maybe my confusion in that or is I, it doesn't feel charged to me anymore. And so maybe uh-huh. I've healed that bit, but the um, residual effects of it feel uh-huh. like very, well, you, I, know, I, you can't make it like it never happened. Yeah. You can only get to a place where you can live with it as gracefully as possible, mm-hmm. which you seem to be able to do. But I have, a, can I, do you mind if I ask you a couple more? No, no, please. We never got to how you met your husband. Oh, um, <laughs> that's important. It I is important. Such an amazing man. He's amazing. Um, How did you meet him? I met him. This is a little. This is maybe funny. Um, I was dating his his um, a friend of his, and um, very briefly, but it it um, made us aware of each other. And it was years prior, and then we, our paths kind of ran parallel to each other for a while. And um, I'm gonna step off for a second, but it's relevant. I had gone to the Hoffman process because oh, I yeah. really uh-huh. was struggling yeah. I, I was diagnosed with reactive attachment disorder and I okay. really have a hard time with connection um and keeping connection and letting people in and so I was finding this pattern in my relationships so stuff would get would be really great and then I would blow it up and it would have that sort of I do that dance for years with people um and so I recognized that I was the common denominator and I was never going to find love and connection if I couldn't figure out how to fix this in myself. And so went to the, the Hoffman process after I've done like a lifetime of therapy. So I like didn't have high hopes that it was going mm-hmm. to do anything. And, uh, right. and it changed something in me. And maybe I just was willing to hear what they had to say at the time. And that's why. But um, I left and... Um, and Johnny and I um, had a, a meeting, random meeting um, somewhere after that. It was great. I mean, from the very beginning, it was that sort of soul connection. Um, and then I blew it up. We had a trip to Mexico plan. We were doing a long distance thing. I was supposed to meet him in Cabo. I never showed up. And then I blamed him for, he's like, you got, you're not coming. You have to come. And I'm like, well, what's wrong with you that you can't have a nice trip in Cabo by yourself? You know, what does that say about you? Uh, how, it says that you're really smart. Yeah, you know, like how weak and terrible. And blah, I mean, just my gaslighting is incredible. It was a good way to flip it over. Oh, yeah. And, um, and so we broke up. And, um, and maybe a month later, he reached out to me, thank goodness, because I probably, I, I wouldn't, in my stubbornness and afraid of, you know, you know connection, wouldn't have done it. And um, and we had a reunion and a, and a series of conversations that um, have changed this relationship from every relationship I had previously where I told him about my reactive attachment disorder. He's in mm-hmm. law enforcement and, um, and said, I wish I had, you're a rad kid. I, I wish I had known that. Um, yeah. That really makes things clearer to me. Um, and it's taken 30 f- years for you to get this way, and it's going to take you a long time to change, and yeah. I'm willing to meet you where you're at. And I felt so seen and heard, mm-hmm. and um, and all my relationships before that, I had been trying so hard to be this, like, to be everything they deserved 
all the time. Uh And so when I would falter, I would leave because I didn't want to disappoint them. And so this is the first relationship where I got to show up in my truth flawed, you know, and, and really hear and understand that that was okay and that I didn't have to be anything other than who I was. And, uh, and he's incredibly patient. Uh, I couldn't do, and I tell him this, and I feel really grateful. If, if he needed from me what I need from him, I couldn't give it to him. And so it's like, he's so grounded. Oh my God. He's, he's the, I mean, they have one of the healthiest marriages. I feel like he's just so grounded and really takes care of you where you need. 100. Oh, and he's so, he, he's so intuitive about like, he knows what I need far before I know what I need. And, um, and he's seen a lot in his work too, yeah. which is probably really helpful for the relationship. I think it, I think that's a huge, which is like, was not something I thought of going in. I, yeah, I didn't think that, that his experience with that would prepare him for me. Um, is this nice like bringing his work home? I don't know. I, <laughs> I, uh, I, I feel grateful for it, but it is this like, I don't know, magical, connection that I um that I was holding my breath for <laughs> a bit and and now it's just a really safe place to get to like be honest and there and imperfect and so I do have another question that's sort of related mm-hmm. um you lost any sort of faith in the process of all of your growing yeah. up have you gotten it back in any way or does it still feel elusive to you um Probably more like spirituality. I like definitely believe yeah. there's something okay. larger. I'm not necessarily talking about religion. I'm just oh. talking about the general concept of, I mean, some people uh, have a religious relationship that feels um, meaningful. Other people have a very strong spiritual connection without an organized religious mm-hmm. uh, structure attached to it. I think I'd probably go for the latter. It, it, I, I feel like there's, I mean... Maybe um, I feel like I, there like there's purpose. Like I I I have, and maybe everybody feels like this. I still feel like there's some something watching over me, and that mm-hmm. there's like some reason I'm here. Okay. And um, and sometimes I I like worry or hope that I'm I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing here. That like because I feel like my past was a gift and. And I don't want to squander that experience as I, I think it's made me really strong. And I, and I feel that I can do something <clears throat> big because of it. And so. Are I, you? What? Are you? I don't know. You're not sure? I'm not sure. Are, I, you, are you doing anything formally to um, sort of help people that have been in your shoes in the past no and 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 that's why i was excited to excited that you asked me excited to be here today i because you are a remarkably resourceful strong person considering what you've been through i mean a lot of people end up either totally drug addicted or dead thank you there's a bit of that i feel lucky that my parents could pay for it like and, and that's like a very real yeah. truth in this like I showed up and did the work but I only showed up because I was afforded uh-huh. the opportunity and and that's right. really unfair yeah. that not everybody is right that uh-huh. and so I feel lucky that despite my circumstances I was born also into these other circumstances that allowed me a second chance so um we're getting close to the end of our visit here today um do you have any sort of final words that you would like to impart on the people that listen to my podcast you know People always like people get caught up in the story sometimes, and and it sometimes they'll they'll hear mine and the, and it will invalidate theirs, or they, maybe it didn't wasn't as bad, or my dad didn't do this or whatever, you know. And and I don't think that's important, right? I think we all of our our the stories are, is um, all of our stories are the same. We all want love and connection, and we've all felt pain and shame and and disconnection and um I think we all have far more in common than we don't you know and I um I think if if you if we could give ourselves 
more credit that our feelings are valid and matter, that it's easier to get to that space of finding connection and and love around us. And that was the hard bit for me, that I felt so alone in my story. And when I could put that aside and said a story that we all have one and we're all wanting the same thing regardless of where we came from, that really opened a lot of doors for me. So Well said. I don't know. Is there anything <laughs> that uh, you want to add, Jessica? I think you should become a therapist. Uh, I think you should I think you could help a lot of people. You've got you've got a lifetime ahead of you. Thank you. I, I, I I started that MFT thing during COVID, and then I've um, I've put it on the back burner with this baby. But uh, but maybe I'll circle back on it because it would it would be nice to do some meaningful work like you're yeah. doing. So thank you again. For well, having thank me. you so much for coming on the podcast. It took I mean it doesn't seem like it took courage for you, but it sure does from my perspective. Well, you were incredibly open, and um, I think that you'll be surprised how many people respond to what you've had to say. I hope it's helped. It has. Thank you. We appreciate our listeners and are interested in your comments and suggestions. Feel free to email us at fearmeoutpodcast at gmail.com. If you are interested in becoming a sponsor for this podcast, please email us at fearmeoutpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. See you next time.